Matthew chapter 27, we'll start in verse 27 today. Some years ago, there was a 14-foot bronze crucifix that had been placed in front of a cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas. It actually been there for a number of years, actually all dating back to 1930, when suddenly, one particular night, I don't know if it was a couple or more than that, but some, some people pulled their truck to the back of it, take, took this 900-foot bronze cross, cut it off in the base, loaded it up, and hauled off with it. Now, it takes a special breed of cat to steal something from a cemetery or a church, all right? And these guys obviously thought very little of a cross, and uh, the police said, you know, by the time they actually cut these in pieces, you're not going to go around selling a 900-foot cross without dry, you know, drawing some attention. They, probably, they estimated that they probably got about $450 for their thievery and their labor. And the problem is they don't understand the value of the cross. And that is the problem. Understanding the value of the cross. And, you know, you see... The problem is this. We don't understand the value of the cross because we don't understand the value of the death of Christ. And in order to really understand the value of the death of Christ, we have to understand the intensity and the immensity of the suffering of Jesus. And that is why Matthew, as we've made our way through his gospel, draws all the focus upon this critical fulcrum of all history, the cross of Jesus. And he does so to give us a glimpse of the suffering of Jesus. It all begins by, first of all, getting a glimpse of the suffering that Jesus endured at the hands of the Romans. Look at verse 27 in chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Just to bring you up to speed, it's been a series of just brutal suffering for Jesus. It all got started with Judas' betrayal, and then Peter's denial three times. The disciples, they abandon him. He's, he is accused of blasphemy when he is asked point blank to swear, are you really the son of God? And he tells them, I am. Even the people, the Jewish people, they're calling for his crucifixion, and they'd rather have a guy like Barabbas a known insurrectionist, and a murderer. They'd rather have him than have Jesus, the innocent one, who never committed any sin whatsoever. And then, in verse 27, what happens is, Jesus, in verse 26, they release Barabbas, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate says, if you want him dead... I declare I find nothing wrong with him. He's washing his hands in front of them, showing them I'm innocent of this man's blood because this is an innocent man. I find nothing wrong with him. And he hands him over to be scourged where he's literally tied to this post and his, his back is literally shredded with these leather straps with bone and glass. And then after that, he hands him over to be crucified. Now, verse 27 picks it up where the soldiers of the governor, and notice he points out it's a whole Roman cohort. The, the, uh, 
right next to the temple, you have got this major fortress, the Antonia Fortress. This is kind of the hub of the uh, Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. A cohort is 600 soldiers. And Matthew says that the whole Roman cohort gathers around Jesus. You've got 600 soldiers now, and now it's their turn. Let me just kind of give you a little historical context of what takes place here. Uh, It is known from understanding what took place from the different writings that these Roman soldiers, they would take prisoners that they're going to crucify and they'd play games with them, especially if you were an insurrectionist. You were a Jewish rebel. uh, You were trying to cause trouble in the empire. They actually had at this fortress, they had marked out all these squares similar to like a game board, and they would take whoever they're going to crucify and they would move him around and he would be their peace. And they even have these knuckles, human knuckles, that they use as dice that they've recovered. They have markings on some of these squares at the fortress. And they'd roll these dice and they would move this person. And that is what they're doing. They've taken Jesus and now Jesus is just another game. To, to see him suffering and bleeding like this and, and the abuse that they're going to hand out, it's no trouble for them. If you expose yourself time and time again to brutality, to just the vileness of of pain and torture, if you see it, whether it's on TV or in the movies or you see it live, you become rather desensitized to it. It's just another day on the job. And that is what's happening here. They gather around him, and then verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now, this robe, uh, the word we actually understand would be something, like be one of the garments like a, that one of the Roman soldiers would be wearing. They strap it on him because what they're going to do is mock him as a king. After all, that is what the Jews claimed. And they said, this Jesus says he's a king. He's a Christ. Really? It's just kind of like, like they lit up. This is going to be a lot of fun. We got a guy who's running around calling himself a king. <laughs> well, let me, well, we'll treat him like a king. And so verse 28, they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And verse 29, after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And even today, you can find these thorns. They can go up to about two inches, these like spikes. And they put this crown because Caesar wore a royal wreath on his head. And so you got a king. Well, let's treat him like one. And so they put together these crown of thorns, and they literally will jam it into his head. The pain would be excruciating. But after all, they're mocking him because they're getting their game piece ready. And they twisted this crown of thorns together. They put it on his head, and they also gather a reed, and they put it on his, in his right hand. Now, Caesar would actually, on a festive occasions, he would have a scepter that he would hold. And so they actually come up with a reed. It's all a lampoon to this whole event of, of royalty. And it would be kind of the, similar to like a broomstick. And they're going to put it in his hand, and that's what they do. And then they kneel down before him. You see that in verse 29? And they mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. They're showing what they really think about Jesus and about this so-called Messiah. Verse 30, they spat on him, and they, they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And you can just see him. They're rolling the die, and they're moving him certain spaces, spitting on him abusing him, taking that reed and hitting him with it multiple times, Jesus, of course, says nothing. He is like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter. And after they mocked him, they they took this scarlet robe off him and they put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, 
I say the word crucify. But at this point, it should cause you to shudder. You see, crucifixion wasn't original with the Romans. It actually gets started with the Persians, then got passed on to the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, but it was perfected by the Romans. They could take a man and they could, cru- they could crucify him, and it was, it, they had perfected torture. They could actually keep an individual alive in unending intense pain for up to two to three days on a cross. Excruciating. Now, people that were crucified, and the Romans crucified lots of people. They always did it in public places, places to send a message. You mess with the Roman Empire. You violate one of our laws. You just frankly make us mad. This is what we'll do to you. And it was a slow death. Some people died of exhaustion, others dehydration, traumatic fever, literally a shock that would go through your body, but most of them died of suffocation. And that is they came to a place where they simply couldn't lift their legs anymore to gather one last gasp of breath, and most of them died that way. There were some that are even recorded that actually died as they were eaten alive by beasts of uh, animals or even uh, different fowl that would come, kind of these birds of prey, that would literally kill these individuals on a cross. They are leading Jesus to his cross. They are going to crucify him, like it says in verse 31. As they were coming out, verse 32, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Now, the Romans had something called what they called the right of impressment, and that meant that a Roman soldier could at any time take anybody and force them into labor, okay? It didn't matter, and so if you were part of an occupied country like Israel is, a Roman soldier could, you could carry his armor, his swords, whatever he wanted you to do, or in the event, like here's someone uh, that needs his cross carried, so you could make him do it. And so that's what's taking place here. There is a man from Cyrene. This is from the Mediterranean area. This is where uh, kind of Libya is today. And Cyrene had a large Jewish community. There is this man named Simon. He has made his way to Jerusalem, likely for the Passover. And he is trying to watch and see what's going on. And Jesus is at this point too weak to carry his cross. And so they press him into service. Now, many times they just carried kind of the horizontal beam. Okay, They forced the prisoners to carry their beam in which they're going to get crucified on through the city. They'd make them wear a placard oftentimes that stated what their crime was. They'd have to carry this beam. That beam would weigh 30 to 40 pounds. However, in Jesus' case, it literally says they pressed him in service to bear his cross. In this case, it seems that they went to not only to carry the beam, the horizontal beam, but also the vertical beam. And it's estimated by scholars that a cross like this would weigh about 200 pounds. I mean, even a strong, grown man would have trouble carrying a 200-pound cross and dragging it through town. But Jesus, having been up all night and whipped, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, stripped, scourged, is too weak. A Roman soldier spots a man who's strong as an ox, and he literally says, you're carrying this cross. Now, I'd imagine a guy like Simon was like, what, what, what? I mean, he came to celebrate the Passover. He's got things to do. Maybe he had family in town, and all of a sudden the Romans just, you're doing this today. And it, isn't it, it's real interesting. Uh, Simon was obviously known to the church. That's why his name is given. In fact, Mark actually mentions his name and his kid's name. And it's tell, let's, let's tell you this. What was a great inconvenience for Simon at the time 
became the doorway of eternal life for him. For this man becomes a Christian. Not only does he, but his family then also comes to see who Jesus really is. And they embrace him. In fact, even his sons are written about in the book of Romans as well, as well as in the Gospel of Mark. So they press Simon into service to bear the cross of Jesus because he's literally too weak to carry it and walk on his own. And so in verse 33, they come to the place of Golgotha. You see that? The place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And there literally is, just outside the gates of Jerusalem, there is this, it's called Gordon's Calvary, this rock feature that looks just like a skull. And it's likely there that they've come for the deed of the history. In verse 34, after they've made their way to this place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. Now, Gall would be uh, like a mild narcotic, okay? Uh, it's, it would be kind of like myrrh. It would be very bitter. And they give it to Jesus. And notice verse 34. After tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. They give it to him because, I mean, what they're, I mean they've already tortured this man. Many would die through going through what Jesus had done. But now they're getting ready to crucify him. They're going, and just a be a little bit merciful for what's coming next. They're going to give him this mild narcotic. Jesus tastes it. He realizes what it is, and he spits it out. Because he's not going to have any of his senses dulled or dimmed. He is going to take the full brunt of their wrath and the wrath of God. So he spits it out. He'll have nothing doing with it. Because after all, this is why he came. He came for this moment. He will experience it in full. He is going to accomplish the redemptive work for which he has set out. And so then, we see just what it looked like for these Roman soldiers as they are bringing him, torturing him, getting ready to crucify him. Now, what would take place here then, verse 35, and when they had crucified him, then they would divide his garments among themselves by casting lots. And so they did. They crucified him. You've seen railroad spikes. Well, the spikes they would use would look very similar to that, except they'd be sharper. They'd drive them through his hands, and they'd put his feet together, and they'd drive it through. And then what they would do they would get the, the vertical bar and the horizontal bar. They'd have that then put together. And then they would hoist it up. Now, they did this rather carefully because they had to get that bottom of that cross. They had to get it into a hole that had already been pre-dug. And, this is, and then they would carefully place that, make sure it was right over, and they would drop it. And there would be a surge of pain far greater than spikes going through your body as all of your joints would now be forced out of place. And that is what took place. They had stripped you naked, and then they forced this this whole cross and just goes thundering down. And so it's just like Psalm 22, verse 14, where where David wrote a thousand years before this event, where he prophetically spoke of the sufferings of Messiah from Messiah's perspective. As Matthew goes through his account, Jews who would be familiar with Psalm 22 would see that point by point it's being fulfilled. Because like in Psalm 22, verse 14, it says this, I am being poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. 
Literally, that would be the experience of Jesus at this point. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And so they crucified him. Matthew doesn't go even through a lot of detail. He simply says they crucified him. And then they divide up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And this would have been a privilege that Roman soldiers who were involved in crucifixion, you, could, you had privilege to their clothing. We always see Jesus at least partially clothed in our minds and pictures. That was not the case. He was absolutely stripped naked. The cross was meant to be absolutely humiliating. And think of it. The incarnation, God, the eternal son, he took on human form for this. So, just like David wrote, listen to these words from Psalm 22 as they all play out. Psalm 22, verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, that, uh, like an earthenware vessel, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. When David wrote that, crucifixion was, wasn't even a known form of execution. And yet, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Doesn't that just even make chills just go up your spine when you realize the prophetic detail that was spoken a thousand years as being point by point fulfilled in Jesus? And then in verse 37, above his head, they put... Up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This would be written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And it appears that Jesus didn't have a placard that he wore as he tried to make his way to Golgotha. But once he got there, it was delivered. And Pilate had this written. And he had it written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was a mockery to Jesus, but especially the Jews. This is your king? This is what you want done for him? I'll be happy to oblige. And so there it is above his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Well, that is a a glimpse, just a glimpse, friends, of the suffering from the hands of the Romans. But there is also a glimpse that Matthew gives us of the suffering that Jesus endured from the hearts of the Jews. Now look at this, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And that's exactly what had been prophesied, that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors in his death. And just like Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, it's going to happen, so it is. He's not crucified alone. There are two other robbers that are being crucified with him at this point. And verse 39, and those passing by, because remember, the Romans would always crucify people on major byways, on major routes. Jerusalem is swelling with people, all these people coming to celebrate the Passover, those who celebrated the night before, making their way, people gathering this road, and it's outside the city, and they're gathering, and notice what they're doing. They're hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Again, this is exactly what's depicted in Psalm 22. And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. You can see the Sanhedrin. 
these ruling Jewish elite. This is exactly what they were they condemned him for. Remember, at their little mock trials that they had the previous night, that night, and saying, you know, you remember he was saying he was going to rebuild the temple in three days. I mean, come on, say, see, uh, Herod's been working on that thing for sixty years, okay, and it's still not done. And you're literally you're the guy who said you're going to tear it all apart and you'll put it back in three days. Well, that'll take some kind of power. Why don't you get started by first of all getting yourself off that cross? That is what they're doing. They're mocking him. But that's not what Jesus said in John 2. He said, I'm speaking of the temple of my body. You tear down this body, you kill it, I will raise it again in three days. They should have caught on, but they didn't. In fact, the very same ones that are yelling in all this abuse and mockery and turning it some sort of revelry, they should have known as the spiritual leaders of Israel that they were fulfilling the prophecies of the scripture. Isaiah 53, like we read from this morning. Psalm 22, which gives the explicit detail of what it'll look like when Messiah is killed. They are doing it down to the letter. And yet, they just mock in absolute unbelief. And they said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Does that sound familiar? Remember in Matthew chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry? What is it that the devil said? Remember when the devil tempted Jesus? Same words. If you are the Son of God, then why don't you, at the beginning and the end of the ministry, Jesus is mocked. If you are the Son of God, really? Come on. You want us to believe that you're God's son, the eternal son? Well, why don't you just clear it up once for all? Why don't you just come on down from that cross? They're hurling their abuse. They're they're mocking him. Verse 41, look at this. In the same way, the chief priests, the head guys, also along with the scribes and the elders were mocking and saying, well, he saved others. He cannot save himself. How about that? He is the king of Israel. Well, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Do you, you see hear it? you see it? He trusts, verse 43, trust in God, let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And make no mistake, they understood fully what Jesus said. He claimed to be the eternal son of God. Remember in John 5.18, they wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be the Son of God. And now they're watching it happen in front of them. They understand the issue. Jesus claimed deity. He claimed to be the Messiah. And they will have nothing of it. They mock him. They ridicule him. And they fulfill all of Psalm 22. This is exactly how Messiah should die. It's, friends, just a glimpse of the suffering. We saw it from the hands of the Roman and the heart's of the Jewish people. Do you know what else? You're also going to see it from the very hostility of the robbers. You remember those two guys that he's being crucified with? Look at verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is staggering. I mean, if you were being crucified on a cross, I mean, imagine the pain just just surging through your body, and yet your character is revealed And they find it that they have at least strength enough to join in the mocking of the man who is in the center, Jesus. And these these robbers, uh, it's a word that actually could be used of an insurrectionist. Don't get the idea that, oh, these were petty thieves and they got crucified over this. No, 
these guys were possibly, it is possible that they had been associates of Barabbas. And if that is the case, then that center cross should have been for Barabbas, who was set free. And Jesus dies in his place. The gospel epitomize. So even the very robbers, did you see that? They were insulting him with the same words. Now, Luke records the only deathbed conversion in the scriptures. You know who it is? The only deathbed conversion, a guy right before he dies who places his faith in Christ, you know who it is? It's one of these robbers. God's radical grace breaks into his heart. He suddenly sees Jesus for who he is. Because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Unless God awakens you, you just keep on missing Jesus. But he realizes that he's a righteous man. And he said, hey, hey, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized that he had done nothing wrong. And remember, Jesus said, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And so we find that even though Matthew does not record this because he's highlighting the hostilities toward Jesus and his sufferings, Luke records that one of these robbers actually places his faith in Jesus. Well, this is just a glimpse of the suffering, but let me tell you, this is nothing compared to the hammer blow that is about to happen starting in verse 45. You see, when we come to verse 45, we're coming to now the sixth hour of darkness. What's taking place from about 9 to 12, 9 in the morning to 12 noon? This is when Jesus makes these various statements. One of the statements that he continually makes is recorded in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. It's in an imperfect tense in the Greek. It means in the past, he kept saying this over and over again. Jesus Being mocked, ridiculed, he keeps saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Obviously, it had an effect even on one of the prisoners. But then, then noon hits and the hammer strikes. And we're going to see the suffering that Jesus endured because of the holiness of God. Now, verse 45, now the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, till about 3 p.m. on the time when the evening sacrifices were being accomplished at the temple. The time when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. At this time, about noon, it says that a darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Literally, the sun just seems to be extinguished. And this, is, this would have been alarming and startling. All of a sudden, well, it gets dark and it's the middle of the day. And you're thinking, well, and, and liberals and people who want to scoff and say, well, the Bible can't be true. You know what's going on there. It's a solar eclipse, and the moon just happened to be, you know, happened to just kind of move in front of the sun for a little bit, and that's the darkness they're referring to. Well, that's actually impossible because the Passover always occurs on what? When it's a full moon. Can you have an eclipse, a solar eclipse with a full moon? You cannot. And furthermore, if you read up in history, this is an event that was noted. And it's very interesting. The early church fathers, early believers, they actually made a great point of this fact that when Jesus was crucified at noon, darkness came over the entire land. I'm of the persuasion that this wasn't just localized to Israel, that this was a darkness that was experienced around the world because the sun itself 
had experienced some sort of supernatural, God-orchestrated darkening. And you can find it's really interesting. Tertullian, one of these early church fathers, and he actually refers to this in a book called The Apologeticum, which is a defense of Christianity toward, you know, to help pagan skeptics understand what is taking place. He wrote this, quote, At the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun, and the land was darkened at noonday. And then listen to this. Which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. The Romans recorded this event. This was a significant event that had been experienced and wrote down. People in the time were very familiar of this supernatural event, and it just so happened at noon when Jesus is on the cross. Tertullian said, this is indication of God's judgment upon his son. And I'm explaining to you what is taking place here. You see, when darkness hit, darkness is a sign of judgment. And what's happening here, the reason it goes dark is because what is taking place is too holy and it is too horrible for mankind to see. It simply could not be absorbed about what is going to take place. And so darkness falls upon the whole land. It, it lasts for three hours until the ninth hour. And about then, look at verse 46, the ninth hour, Jesus is going to cry out with a loud voice. So what took place in those three hours? Why the darkness? Why did God choose to blot out the sun? Because it is at this time that Jesus bore in his body our sins. Think of it, the absolute perfect righteous one literally experiences death. And, and he pays the penalty and the, the extreme, excruciating price of sin. The spotless son of lamb actually had, becomes and bears our sin in his body while he's on the cross. If you want uh, just a very simple description of what takes place, it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. What's happening is that God is punishing his own son as if he had committed every single sin done by every wicked sinner who would ever believe. Every one of them. Your thoughts, your actions, your words, your self-centeredness, all of that. Your total disregard of God, using his name in vain, living life on your own, trying to squeeze life out of your money and sex and, and just trying to find life apart from God. All of that, Jesus is crushed by the Father. And what happens is, as Jesus is crushed by the Father, when we believe in Christ, his complete, perfect, righteous life, that standing is actually then given to you and me, the undeserving. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so Jesus pays this great price and penalty. It's, it's God's own wrath against sin. It's God's own righteousness. You see, God is ups, uh, upholding his morality. And sin is a violation of that. Someone must pay, so Jesus pays on our behalf. God's own sense of justice is satisfied. Jesus is not paying some sort of ransom to Satan, like, I've got to buy my people, so I'm going to pay Satan off. Because that's not where the debt's owed. The debt is owed to God's holiness. 
And you had to be completely perfect to satisfy God's just wrath against sin. So Jesus steps into our place and he takes it in full. You remember when Jesus was sweating blood in the garden when he was praying right before this? Do you know why? Because there had never been any sort of breakdown of fellowship between the Father and the Son. But now in these three hours, there is this break. Because God, who is holy, cannot be in the presence of sin. And so his holy Son takes upon sin. And there is a break in the fellowship. There is not a breach in the Trinity. But this is a mystery so great that there are not even words to explain what is taking place here on the cross. And so it is as if simply like the, that cup is being offered to the Son, all of our sin, and the Father says, here it is, drink it. And Jesus does it willingly for us on our behalf. And it is at this time that he says, verse 46, at this ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. This is literally a quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. When Jesus says this, it should have rippled through everyone's mind that, whoa, 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 this, he's, doing, he's fulfilling everything that Psalm 22 says. And then he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the Jews, they, they simply don't understand what is going on. They use this as a time for further mocking. Verse 47. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, oh, look at the man is calling for Elijah. Uh, and let me just tell you what's going on here. Elijah was, remember, he was taken up in a whirlwind. He didn't die. And the thought was among Jews that Elijah could come and rescue someone at any time. He had the ability to do that. And he said, oh, Jesus is now calling for Elijah. You don't think the darkness would have caused them to just be silent. No, the mocking continues. In verse 48, 48, immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, and he filled it with sour wine, and he put it on a reed, and he gave him a drink, which actually fulfills Psalm 69, verse 21, which he actually speaks of him drinking vinegar, because they give him vinegar as his drink. But the rest said to them, oh, no, no, no. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Even in this final minute, The world is mocking him. And then verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. He literally cries out to telestai, which means it is finished. This isn't like an exasperation like it's over. It is what a victor would yell as he won. To telestai, it is finished. Redemption is finished has been accomplished. Atonement has been satisfied. I have done it. And obviously he has a strength that only could come from Jesus himself who says it is finished and he does it with strength. And all of a sudden this is going to yield a series of events that are going to take place. But I want you to remember that when Jesus says it is finished and he yields up his life for us, That means there is nothing you can do to earn God's salvation. You can't get baptized, show up at a church, do penance, act poorly, or go put yourself through a bunch of rigors to seemingly earn God's favor. When he said it is finished, he alone accomplishes our salvation. You do nothing. He even gives you the grace to believe. Remember Ephesians 
Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. God does it. He does it. At this moment then, a series of just supernatural events take place here. Jesus cries out. He yields his spirit. And behold, verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, this veil, okay, they had two veils, one uh, right in the front of the holy place, and then between the holy place and the holy of holies. Remember, that's the curtain that the high priest went behind once a year at the Day of Atonement. It is 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. It tears from top to bottom at this moment here. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the reason is because God is signifying that access to me is through my son. You don't have to go through a priest. Atonement has been made an entrance to me into my presence, which we oftentimes take for real, just for granted, has been provided through the death and the tearing of my son. And let me show you another miracle that took place. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. There is an earthquake. Now, earthquakes aren't necessarily unfamiliar in Palestine. It sits on a fault. But this earthquake is so great that rocks were split. And these rocks would refer to these sepulchers. Sepulchers are kind of like the graves that Jewish people buried their their people in. They literally split so they would be open. And now to split stone would be a rather serious earthquake, which means that everyone in Jerusalem, if you've ever been through an earthquake, it is unsettling. I mean, you're just like, whoa, all your equilibrium is thrown off. If it was that severe, it was as if God was giving a divine exclamation mark to the judgment that had taken place upon his son. Stones, sepulchers are even split. And then, just like Matthew, who writes things thematically, look at verse 52. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, and they appeared to many. Now, let me just tell you what's going on here. Matthew records this event, and he alone does it. But these sepulchers were opened, and notice he's even, he's telling you, and when when the resurrection took place, there were times that people, these were either, these were Jews that had died prior to the coming of Christ, who believed in Messiah. Some of these, we don't know how many, they actually appeared. I take it that they actually were given these resurrection bodies because Christ has to die and be raised because he is the first fruits of what is to happen. The Jews believe in a bodily resurrection, as do Christians. Jesus, when he's raised from the dead, he obviously appears. Well, there were some others that made an appearance. In fact, Matthew writes that they even went and appeared in Jerusalem. All of this to show you that it was all focused on the death of and the resurrection of Jesus. And then, if that's not miracles enough, enough, then Matthew brings us back to the scene. Verse 54. Look at this miracle. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. You see, these are the soldiers that heard Pilate say, I find nothing wrong with him. These are the ones that heard that the, remember the chief priests and the scribes were accusing him, saying, this, this Jesus says he's the king, the Christ, the son of God. The earthquake, the darkness, Jesus forgiving the people that, he's, that are crucifying him and mocking him. How he died, they had seen a lot of deaths. 
They had never seen a man die like this. And the very first believer and convert drawn to Christ after his death is this Roman centurion and his men. And they say, truly, this was the Son of God. Cross, you know what it reveals? It reveals what kind of world we have and what kind of God exists. It shows us that the world is filled with inexplicable sin and that we have a God, a God of sacrificial love. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This, friends, is the gospel. We're more sinful than we've ever realized and imagined. And God is more loving and gracious than can be explained. And I want you to see that Jesus enters into our pain through the payment of our sin. He is not immune to our pain. When I look at the world and its suffering, people in our church suffering, people around the world, Christians suffering, pain, brokenness everywhere, I, I take great comfort and find strength in the reality that Jesus enters into our pain fully. For the death of Christ reveals the depth of love that God has for his people. And friends, you want to add depth to your soul? We're saying that we'd like to see a revival. You want to see a revival? It starts in our hearts as we daily focus on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We keep focusing upon him. And so, friends, let me just tell you, Sin no longer has a hold on your life. Salvation can never be taken from you. And you need to know this. Death can never separate you from the love of God. And so like Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know, the cross, it's rough. And it's deadly. But like A.W. Tozer said, it is effective. Peter wrote of these experiences and he said, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. You see, Jesus suffered and died for us so that we may be redeemed and live through him. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. January 27th, 2005, there was a train wreck in the Los Angeles Metro Link. Eleven people died, many others were injured. When they were in the process of trying to rescue people from this this mess of tangled up cars and people. One guy that they brought out said, there's another guy down there still. And so using the jaws of life, they finally get to this guy. His name is John. They were able to save him. He was pretty messed up. But what they found that John had done when he thought he was dying is what completely floored them. Captain, firefighter Captain Rosario recounts this, that when they got there and they were rescuing, they noticed that he had taken his own, from his own blood, he had just written two simple sentences. He wrote, I and a heart, my kids, 
And then he wrote, I and a heart, I love Leslie, but he was running out of his own blood. And the firefighter captain said this, quote, the fact that this guy in this situation had the amount of love that he had for his family and for him to realize I'm possibly going to die here, how could any words explain it? And remember this, God communicated his love for the world. And he did so with the blood of his son. And how could any words explain?